Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And today we have a very special guest, which is Richard Engel. So Richard and I uh, have known each other for some years, but most recently we bumped into each other on another aeroplane and he had just come back from an extraordinary series of meetings and encounters as he's been following the figure of Prigozhin. Prigozhin, just to remind listeners, is of course the head of the Wagner Group, the man that recently led a mutiny against Vladimir Putin. And Richard had been bringing this documentary together over a couple of years, following the story through, he was in Syria, he was in the Central African Republic, going to Ukraine and expecting to bring it out in the autumn and was beginning to worry that people weren't really going to be that interested in who Prigozhin was or who the Wagner Group was, when suddenly uh, this whole story broke. And we're very lucky to have Richard with us today, because I don't know anyone who knows more about Prigozhin. So thank you, Richard, for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Uh, thank you very much. It was extraordinary. You know, I've been covering Prigozhin, following this guy who's first was in the shadows and then burst into sort of the public domain in the during the, the latest war in Ukraine. And we were working on it and we had been in Africa and we had the material and we we're starting to go through it and process it and write it. And then suddenly... We look around and he's crossed the border uh, from Ukraine into Russia. His men are on the attack and they're marching toward Moscow. And we all look and said, okay, well, this has just changed. This is real. We got to get this out immediately. So we crashed together. We had the material, you know, a lot of the material already and suddenly it became in- immensely timely. So uh, it's just, just coincidence would have it. You know, we were, we were following this guy because we thought he was an interesting and, and, and important and he had an important network. So Richard, you're a long-term foreign correspondent with NBC and this has already gone out on NBC and we're going to put this interview out when it goes out online so that our listeners all over the place can can see it. You very kindly sent us a link, so I, I got up very, very early to watch it. How on earth has this happened that this guy and this set of mercenaries that he's kind of dragged around from here then everywhere, that have become so powerful uh, in so many different places? So what's your answer to that? How has this happened? I think you need to understand the the nature of the Russian state and the nature of the Russian state, as it was described to me by many, many people who have spent their years, spent their careers writing about it and thinking about it and going there. And I, I've spent quite a bit of time in Russia as well over the years as a, as a mafia state where you have Vladimir Putin at the center of a syndicate, the, the, the godfather, some people called him. So most people imagine a state or a company where you have the boss and then all the other people are employees of the boss. But in a mafia family, it's slightly different. So you have the capo di tutti i capi, who's the head of all the other heads is literally what that means. And that's a different kind of power structure than, you know, that you have a CEO of a company and then he has all of his 
his or her team underneath them who get together and follow their orders and try and enact a, a plan. When you have a boss of bosses, each one of these families, each one of these syndicates has their own network and their own business. And Prigozhin was one of them. He had his own operations and there was a mutually beneficial relationship between Prigozhin uh, and, and Putin. And Richard, let's take it right back to the start. So one of the things you talk about is his early life. And tell us about the first time we notice him, the crime and being sent off to this penal colony and 10 years he spent in prison. It's kind of completely terrifying. And then what he did in prison. So 10 years of hard labor. So in go back to, we have to go back to St. Petersburg in the, in the 1980s. So in the 1980s, if everyone remembers, this kind of the decline of the Soviet Union, it would ultimately implode first from the outside and then within 1991, from you know, 89, 91, the whole sort of disruptive period of, uh, of, of, of history as the Soviet Union was collapsing onto itself because of its corruption and inefficiency and the Cold War pressure. So in the in the 80s, he's uh, in St. Petersburg, which has been, let's say, you think of it as Chicago in the, the 1920s. It's a rough town, lots of gangsters, already in the 80s under this declining Soviet Union. And that's where Prigozhin is. He lives in the city and he's a crook. He's a, he's a criminal. And he and some friends get into an armed robbery. They, they rob a woman on the streets. They, he nearly strangles her to death, takes her belongings, takes her boots and gets arrested, does nearly 10 years of hard labor. But was, it, was he known to the police as a crook? I, you know what? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, it, was this, it was this crime that, that pushed it over. I don't know if, uh, how much of a record he had previously, yeah. but it, 10 years is a lot. But if you nearly kill someone in an unprovoked attack. So just to clarify, and that's 10 years in Siberia in a sort of, I mean, this is like, this is like the life of Ivan Denisovich. 10 tough years, which according to people, biographers or people who had already been looking into him, he likes, he likes it. He gets into it. He appreciates the, 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 the work ethic and the discipline and he gets out and okay, he's arrested in, in, in the very early 80s. He gets out. 81, what period are we in now? We're in exactly the collapse of the Soviet Union. So he gets out of jail after he's been breaking rocks or presumably whatever they're doing in, in the jail, making radios or whatever hard labor at the time uh, involved. But it was just this penal colony was, was quite rigorous for its uh, amount of work that they made you do. He gets out and now in St. Petersburg, which already had this, was already kind of a, a mafia town, the state is gone. So the mafia is the only thing left. So he goes into business and he grows this one hot dog stand into it mysteriously uh, gets a, into a chain of restaurants very quickly in prime locations in very in the nicest sort of real estate spots in St. Petersburg. So he, he quickly has this empire. So he's a he's certainly a connected guy and knows how to operate in this world of St. Petersburg that is now a real it was a gangster town before and now very much so. There's a there's a clip in the in the documentary that I almost jumped out of my seat because I've seen the pictures of Prigozhin serving food to George Bush. But then suddenly I see my old boss Tony Blair there as well. And I'm trying to think, when was that? Was that in St. Petersburg? Because I do remember going to St. Petersburg and having dinners there at the, the summits that were going on there. So I'm thinking, God, did I miss this guy? So a lot of people miss this guy. He was very discreet. He was quiet. He was in the background. Sometimes he's described as Putin's chef. He's not a chef. He doesn't. I mean, maybe he knows how to make an omelet or something, but he's not a cook. He doesn't wear the white jacket and, and make mm. food. He's a restaurateur. He's a caterer. And, and it is in St. Petersburg in this time when he and Putin come into contact because he's got the nicest restaurants and that becomes Putin's hangout as Putin is a rising star. And, and, and for listeners and people who have a chance to watch this amazing documentary, um, what Alice is referring to is that you see again and again people like George W. Bush and Tony Blair sitting down at the table to have these formal state dinners. That's not in St. Petersburg. So you have to jump ahead. So St. Petersburg, they meet. Putin is a advisor to the mayor. He's a mid-level intelligence officer, KGB. KGB later converts to the FSB. And had Putin not 
had this spectacular rise, we'd never heard of Prigozhin. Right. He'd maybe own a bunch of restaurants in, in St. Petersburg. He wasn't an oligarch in the sense that we've understood the oligarchs, the Berezovskis and these guys. He wasn't like that. He was more like a low-level guy who got himself into Putin. No, I, I think Putin's system is, is more, less like when you think of oligarch, it, it gives the idea of a, a business tycoon. And you had business tycoons, but then you had an inner circle of fixers. So to go back right. to the, 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 the mafia analogy, which was used to me time and time again, is you have the boss of bosses, and then each guy has his own syndicate. So I don't want to cast aspersions, but if this was the deal, I'm the boss of bosses. Okay, Rory, you've got your own family. And Rory, you've got your own businesses, some legitimate and some uh, illegitimate, illegal. And you run that. And that money goes to you. And you, Alistair, have your own separate syndicate. So you're rivals. You're not all employees of me. And then you're, you earn for yourself. And I make sure that you all get top cover and that you don't fight among yourselves. But then the, something extraordinary happens. 2000, Putin becomes president. So all of these people are now hyper empowered because now I have super connections. All of you can be useful to me if I ever ask you a favor. And then he becomes the caterer. So once he becomes president, now as I go back to your question, where all those extraordinary pictures were, he became the official caterer for the armed forces. He became the caterer for the Kremlin. He became, he, he rose up from someone who was restaurants running the hangout where these guys were to now he's the official state caterer, which is a very lucrative job. It's um, very reminiscent, I think, of what happens in, in medieval courts as well. Uh, so um, Henry VIII has this figure, Thomas Cromwell, who's basically a sort of working class fixer who is so reliable, he just gets things done for him in a whole series of different areas that eventually he makes him you know, Lord Chancellor of England. So Prigozhin, you get the sense he's trusted to run a good meal. He's trusted to make sure that Tony Blair is sat properly, that the wine's coming, the food's coming. But Putin is also relying on him to do many other things. So he's beginning to develop a small security company He's running his chain of restaurants. And the line between public procurement, private business activity is very, very blurred. You know, how exactly did he get this contract? And that, that means, just to jump you forward in the story, when Putin is then looking for a chance for somebody to help him in an incredible context, which is Syria, he turns to this guy who he thinks is a kind of reliable fixer. Yes. So he's now a contractor, if you will, who's got his own business network. And first he relies on them uh, for a variety of things. So Prigozhin has this network of, of businesses. One of them is catering. He also forms a private security company called Wagner. And he wants, you know, imagine guys, bodyguard services, people, you know, big guys, earpieces, khaki shirts, and he's going to use them to provide security services, but they don't really have a purpose yet. They start getting used in Ukraine after the takeover of Crimea and Donbass. Don't have a very significant role. They're a player among players there, but they start to get some military experience. And then 2015, if you remember what Syria was like in 2015, mess, it was total chaos. You had... Uh, ISIS, you had a coalition of, of rebel groups backed by different countries, the, the United States, the UK, everybody seemed to, the Arab states were backing them. People didn't know exactly who they were backing. Some of these rebel groups would get backed and then collapse and join sides. It was one of the most chaotic periods of, of conflicts that I've, that I've ever covered. And, and Richard, let's just bring, bring in the personal there for a second before we jump back to Prigozhin. You were in and out of that period. What, what, what are your memories of what it felt like on the ground? What was it like for the Syrian people? What were the expectations? Did people think that Bashar al-Assad's regime was going to collapse? What was your feeling at the time? Very much so. It was very, very chaotic. It was uh, one of the strangest periods that I've covered. I was kidnapped in Syria during this period. There were so many different factions that, that couldn't necessarily be trusted. And th there were lots of interplay. You know, you'd have one faction, then they would change sides, and then they would rename themselves, and some were backed by the government, and then they'd bring in Islamists, and then they would fight among themselves. And Bashar al-Assad was 
barely clinging to power. And is at this stage, he reaches out to Russia for help. And Assad goes to, to Moscow and says, please, I need, I need help. And Bashar al-Assad you know, is, is clinging for power. And Putin says, yes, I back my allies. I don't turn my back, unlike the Americans, unlike these other people who abandon their allies, not me. But he doesn't want to get bogged down like other countries have done in, in, in Iraq. So he, like the United States and the UK and the whole coalition got stuck in Iraq. So he, he sends warplanes to bomb Assad's targets. But to, instead of sending ground troops, Prigozhin, we've got a mission for you. Take this Wagner force and go there and prop up the Assad regime. And he's got an incentive. At that stage, the soldiers that Prigozhin has with him, where are they coming from? Are they, and who's paying for them? Who's paying for them, I'll, I'll get to in a second, because effectively they pay themselves. By thieving and raiding land and all that stuff. By oil. And there's a document we, we, we come across that Prigozhin was given a 25% cut of oil and gas facilities that he was able to take control of. So nominally to reclaim them for the Syrian government. And hey, if you get to reclaim them from the government, from these rebel groups uh, or, or ISIS or, or whatever, you get a 25% cut. And Richard, just to, again, I mean, you're, you're being very modest about yourself in this whole story um, because you're telling the story of Prigozhin. But just for listeners, Richard is the chief foreign correspondent for NBC. He had covered the Iraq war. He was tear gassed during the Arab Spring in Cairo. He speaks good Arabic. And you were kidnapped in Syria. You escaped after five days. So you were right in the heart of all this. When did you personally f first start hearing rumors about Russian mercenaries at the Wagner Group? Well, hold on, hold on. before that, Richard, yeah. we've just seen there, we've got a little divergence in our pockets. I say Wagner, he says Wagner. What should we be saying? Probably Wagner with a V. Yeah. And where did it come from? It didn't come from the composer, exactly. It was the nickname of one of the sort of co-founders of the group with Prigozhin. It was his okay. call sign. And that, I assume, came from Wagner, the... The, 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 the composer. composer. Yeah. So it's it's kind of of the composer, but one degree separated. It was the call sign of somebody else. Okay, so so just to just to be clear though, Roy, from now on in, you've you've introduced Richard as the expert on this guy. So we say <laughs> Wagner, okay? I don't think Prigozhin's going to care right now. He has big fish to fry at the moment. <laughs> but so they, they 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 set up this operation in in Syria, and Syria really becomes the model. You go in. You prop up the, 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 the dictator and you take what you want and take what you can get. And how many, how many troops did he have with him at that time? And you asked earlier where they come from. So yeah. I can give you an, an anecdote because I spoke with one of the guys who was early, an early recruit and he was sort of a typical recruit for Wagner in this period. And he, he had, he was an older, older guy, not, not old, but, but, a, but certainly an adult, not a kid. He was in, in his forties at the stage. He had been a, not a soldier, kind of a non-commissioned officer. He commanded troops, sergeant type uh, level uh, rank. And he had been in the Soviet army, was good at it, liked it, liked his, you know, his job and commanding men. Then the Soviet army collapses. So he's got nothing to do. And in this chaotic period, he, like many other people, start working for low level gangsters. And he ends up becoming a, a bodyguard for some local hoodlum and doesn't particularly like it. Ends up murdering someone because that happens all the time. And these, you know, these gangs are, are killing each other. Spends time in jail, three years in jail. Gets out, goes to work as a bodyguard for some other hoodlum. Doesn't particularly like it. He's drinking himself to death. And Prigozhin comes and taps on him and said, hey, I need you. I need you for my, my army. I'm putting together this private militia group and it's going to be the best of the best. And this guy said, yes, yes, of course. Loves it, loves Prigozhin. So it's this, this group of second chances and hard cases who, if they get killed, nobody's going to say anything. They're from deep in central Russia. I went deep into central Russia to go to some of their funerals because it was all hush hush. And the reason it was convenient for Putin to do it this way is he doesn't have to commit real Russian troops. He can send these, these nobodies, these has-beens, these hard cases who already get the rules. So they go there, they fight, they get their money, they get paid, great. But if they get killed, 
they get buried somewhere in Russia next to their families and their families don't say anything about it. And now, Richard, we now jump forward. So to Africa, and we saw you in Syria during the documentary, and then you moved on to the Central African Republic, where you interviewed the leader of the Central African Republic. Tell us what the Wagner Group was then doing in the Central African Republic, and then eventually in Mali, Mozambique, uh, Burkina Faso. Give us a sense of that and give us a sense of the politics going on there. So Syria, even though there was one horrific battle where Prigozhin totally overestimated his own strength, and he tries to take an oil facility, oil and gas facility in Syria, and doesn't realize that there's some very elite, or realizes but underestimates some, uh, that there's these very elite American special forces on this base, and, and gets totally decimated. So in Syria, he's he's still a learning, uh, getting combat experience with, with mistakes along the way, including this one incident when about 300 of his men were just, and, an allied local Syrian militia were totally decimated by, by the Americans. And, and Richard, this, this was the first time that US troops have been fighting Russians since Vietnam. Yes. So just to, to finish the Syria story, he, he, he tries to attack this, this base because they had this incentive, 25% of any oil and gas facility you can take is yours, pay yourself. He goes after this one base, whoops, there's a small contingent of very elite, very well-armed, very angry American special troops who don't like to be attacked by some mercenaries and wipes them out. So he's getting better through errors in, in Syria. After Syria, just to, 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 to answer your question to, to, to Africa, he, he's kind of now established a model. So the, 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 the president of the Central African Republic, Faustian Twadera, he is, his country is facing terrible civil war. Imagine Syria kind of situation, terrible civil war. The rebels are at the gates of the city and he controls, according to him and his advisors, 20% of the country. The rebels control 80% and nobody's going to help. Nobody wants to help him. He, he claims, he told me, the president told me and others, he went around, he's asking for help. Nobody wants, nobody cares. Putin says, I will help you. That's who we are. We help allies. We help people in need. Same deal. He doesn't want to send ground troops to some Central African nation. He sends Wagner and Wagner does a good job. Good job from his perspective. He kills lots of rebels, secures the capital, flips it. So government now has 80%. The rebels still have 20%. But what does he do? He takes all the gold and, and mine sites over. And we have satellite imagery that showed before and after what it was like when the Wagner people showed up, how they abused the locals in order to get them to run away from these mine sites and there's no foreign troops there so it's, it's relatively more 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 easy so now he's got a, a country and he effect, takes effective control of the country with the government's inviting having invited him in but richard to do that to go in where the government is telling you we need help here and we've lost control of 80 percent of our own country to flip that he must have a military structure and military numbers that maybe we don't even countenance as being a mercenary army. It's not so much, you know, we're not talking tens of thousands. We're talking a few thousand, hundreds and, right. or a few thousand. And they operate there as trainers and advisors. So what they do in the Central African Republic is they go in and then they train and work with the local army. So they, they have extra, extra manpower from the local militia and the local army. So he's getting good people. He's getting good military operatives. Well, clearly they weren't that good. They'd lost 80% of the country, but he has, he has, they have clay. They have people who they can work with. I, I think what Alistair means is that his people are good. I mean, obviously the Central African army, we're not, we're not doing that well. They're getting, they're getting better. Right. They're learning. By now they're, they're starting to become real because they've, they fought in mm. Syria and Actually, they start recruiting locally. They take some Syrians with them and they enforce discipline with savage brutality. There was a, a, a deserter in Syria, a man named Hamdi Buta, and he deserted from the force because even in Syria, they worked with Syrians. So that's why you don't need as many numbers of them because you send advisors 15, 20, 30, and then they work with perhaps 100 Syrian advisors and command work over them so they become what's called a force multiplier to use military mm. jargon same kind of, of model in africa they go in they they use 
the resources, the very few resources that this very poor army can provide in terms of vehicles and trucks and things. And they bring in more equipment and they fight off the rebels. And the rebels are also very poorly armed. So they have a technological uh, superiority and they have some combat experience from, from other conflicts. Richard, Roy, we'll just take a quick break and we'll be back in a second. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. There were a couple of moments in that Central African Republican part that really kind of struck with me. The first was a very moving interview with the widow of a guy who'd been a miner who'd be effectively been wiped out because they wanted the locals out of the way so they could raid all the, I think it was gold at the time. Gold mine, yeah. Right. And the second thing that really struck me was the, the interview you did with the president, who it seemed to me completely changed his body language and his demeanor, wouldn't even bring himself to use the word Wagner was almost, I felt, am I right in thinking he was maybe a little bit scared of the Wagner group at this point? Well, I think it was, and his name is President Faust, and I was wondering if he had made a deal with the devil. <laughs> he, 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 Faustian Twadera is his name, so he brought in Wagner forces to prop up his government, and now they are his bodyguard services. So when I went to go see him, you have to go through Wagner there as, as part of the security. They were all over the palace. His national security advisor is a Wagner Russian guy. The, the embassy there, according to diplomats, they're all populated with Wagner. So you invited them in. Yes, they, they fought back the rebels and now they keep you in power, but they have uh, dominance in the country. And the, and the widow, what did you think make of her? So. The widow was, was a person that she had lived in these mines. So you have to think of this is an incredibly poor country. Central Africa next to the, the DCR, Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it's heavily forested and they have many, many gold and diamond mines, artisanal mines dug by hand. And imagine just big pits, honeycombed kind of pits uh, where very wet. You have people digging the mines and then sifting for, for gold. Wagner wants to take them over under the guise of fighting rebels. So they come in, they arrive in their technicals, 
And this woman was was there and describes how the Wagner mercenaries show up. They have a piece of paper. It says this land is now ours. It was given to us by the government for in order to protect it. And this is our area. And the, the locals don't want to leave. And according to her account, they kill her husband and seven other people, bury them in a grave to terrify people. So then they leave and they take over. And that that was a pattern. We heard, you know, we reviewed dozens of accounts of similar atrocities where they would move in, beat or, or, or kill a couple of examples and then in order to get the people to to run away and then they take over the site. And Richard, I mean, it's a very, very uh, sinister story, isn't it? Because when it suits Putin, he will claim credit for the Wagner Group. So there will be connections with the embassies. He will be saying to the president, I'm sending my guys. And then when it suits him, he can distance himself from them and say, they're nothing to do with me. They're just a private company. They're a bunch of mercenaries. That's the beauty of the arrangement. Exactly. It allows him to do much more brutal, radical things than if he was sending formal Russian soldiers in on the ground. But it must also have been dangerous for you. I mean, three Russian journalists were killed in the Central African Republic. You're in the Central African Republic. And at this stage, you try to reach out directly to Prigozhin for an interview, and you're basically saying to him, would you care to comment on the fact that your men are committing atrocities, that you're a gangster boss, and this, that, and the other? I mean, were you not, uh, sorry, this is a little maybe unfetty, but were you not a little bit scared trying to ask Prigozhin for an interview? It was a very good voice note he sent back to you. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, I think, was he threatening to rip out your Adam's apple? I couldn't quite understand it. Uh, yes, I think he was. It was. Certainly to crush it, if not rip it out. But he, uh, so you, you know, we did a, a standard right of reply, you know. So we're there and we had tried to meet the, the, the Russian officials locally, openly. You know, we're driving around and we go to the, there's a Russia house there and knock on the door. We'd interviewed the president. We interviewed the president's advisor. We're doing our, our jobs openly in uh, in the Central African Republic, hoping hopefully that you know we're not going to get killed there. Yes, three Russian journalists got killed for basically doing the same thing, and we we do our stories. So far, no no direct harassment or threats. Although we see the Wagner people all around, and I'm sure they were, were following us, and we they were staying in our hotel and they were walking around, and I you, you just see them, and they drive around in cars with no license plates, balaclavas uh, up to their up to their noses and you know kind of hard stairs and it's no secret that they're there in the central african republic there's a statue to wagner in the middle of the city yeah. with life-size soldiers they even made a movie about themselves i went and saw the movie they released a movie about wagner and their heroics in uh in the country and they showed it to the local people to, to sort of prop themselves up so we sent uh, a right to reply. Okay, uh, Mr. Prigozhin, we, we have these questions. Would you like to answer? How do you respond to comments? And could you tell us more about your operations? And he writes back quite promptly with a voice note saying, you know enough about our operations based on the people you've spoken to. And uh, I'll only answer you if your questions are less provocative. And if you mean to come and, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something like this. Uh, but if you mean to just insult me and spit in my face, then I suggest you come a little closer and see if it's your Adam's apple that I'm squeezing or somebody else's. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's quite a right to reply. <laughs> you know, normally you just get no comment or you get, you know, nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, and also he gave you a very, very dramatic piece of graphic for the, for the documentary. This was all before. This was just, this was literally a few weeks before his move on Moscow. So that's yeah. why when he starts moving on Moscow, we're like, oh my gosh, we have all this material. <laughs> the guy just threatened to rip my throat out. Uh, we got to put this together quickly. But the reason he's in Ukraine is he goes into Ukraine is because Putin has seen him be an effective supplier of, you know, food and drink to the great and the good, seen him do other stuff, no doubt, then done pretty well in Syria, then done well in the CAR. And then he needs him in, in Ukraine. He also had a bot farm. This is a guy, he's the Swiss Army Knight of Special Operations. Oh, of course, we haven't done the to, Trump. Between Syria and Central African Republic is the 2016 election. He already had, this guy had all kinds of operations. He also had a small bot farm, uh, bot farm disinformation thing that yeah, he was yeah. using to uh, attack Russian dissidents and discredit Russian you know, Kremlin critics. And then suddenly, right before the 2016 election, that bot farm expands and shifts and goes after the Hillary Clinton, 
props up Donald Trump, says all kinds of wonderful things about him, spreads memes around the internet. And that's when he sort of burst out of the shadows because there were so many investigations in, in the United States. And, you know, who is this guy? Putin's chef, now he's running a disinformation campaign. And then Trump gets elected. It's impossible to know if all those ads and memes and things swayed voters' minds, but he, in, in Moscow, they were certainly happy with the results. There's a bit in the film where you've got him, uh, I think it's him and some other people sort of drinking champagne. That was a viewing party in Moscow, yeah. That, so, but hold on, was that them watching the Trump yes, win? Yes, yes. It was? Yeah, it was cutting back and forth to wow, people in Moscow yeah. celebrating the, the Trump win and drinking champagne. Once you having looted it, what's your own assessment? I mean, I, I think that, you know, we interviewed Hillary Clinton for the podcast a, a while back. I was in Russia at the time. They were very happy. But what? But what's your assessment as to whether actually the extent of the effect that it did have? I noticed, for example, when you talked about the Bakhmut, uh, I guess you'd call it the massacre, it looks horrific. But you were also making the point that militarily it wasn't that significant. It was like a massive marketing thing for Wagner. Now, was the the bot farm, the troll farm, was there something similar in that, that he just sort of wants the world to think that he's amazing and a genius? Or was he actually influencing that election, do you think? It, it's sort of one of these unknowables. He did this campaign that was against Hillary Clinton. It was stirring the pot of pushing buttons in the United States about latent racism and, and issues that are sensitive to Americans. And he was attacking Hillary Clinton and he was propping up Trump. Did that sway the vote? I don't know. It's hard to know. You'd have to ask any individual voter why they voted for Trump. And it probably there's no single causality factor for anything in the world, but it, it, it probably didn't didn't hurt. And then, but going ahead. So now he's gone from success to success to success. He's the apple of Putin's eye, the perception of success at least. And now we're up to 2022. So if you're a Prigozhin, you're, you've, everything you've done has, has sort of worked out. You, you've made money in the process. You've helped out the boss. The other members, other kind of similar people to you are, are quite jealous because they don't, you know, nobody likes a, a rising star. But then everything changes with this decision to invade Ukraine in an open conventional war in 2022. And then it goes badly. That's the shocking part for Putin, certainly. He, his armies have told him, ah, you're gonna march in, it'll be easy, and you'll be in Kiev in days, and they'll be celebrating. They brought dress uniforms with them, and it goes badly. They get, the Ukrainians are fighting back, the Russian vehicles, barely have enough gas to get to Kyiv. They break down. They don't have food. There's no logistics. The different commands, uh, the, the forces attacking from the north aren't communicating the ones that are coming from the east. And there's another division going to the south. They're not talking to each other. Just an absolute catastrophe. So guess what happens? Later on in the war, and you call for Bergosian. But this is very different. Now he's asking him to radically transform Wagner. Because Wagner until now, as we've been talking about, had hundreds, maybe a couple of thousand guys in it. Not a huge army. Putin's now asking him to convert this small paramilitary group into a division of, of frontline crack soldiers, shock troops. And you need tens of thousands of people to do that. And, and that's heavy weapons and, and uniforms and logistics. You need to make them into an army. And that he'd never done before. So what does he do? Mm -hmm. What's the first thing you would need? Men. So Putin authorizes him to go empty the prisons. And where there are these famous pictures of him going at the jails, offering all these convicts, he says, I have been authorized to give you a deal. And don't forget, he's himself an ex-con. He knows how to talk to these people and says, I will give you a deal. You're gonna, I'm going to send you into hard combat. You might not survive. Not all of you are going to survive. We are only looking for frontline troops. But if you survive six months, you're free and you have five minutes to decide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he leaves. He's like, when I'm leaving, I'm leaving. He gets tens of thousands of people who, who, who join up for this. Some of them hope that they could escape. They thought we'll go to uh, Ukraine and we'll just get in the battlefield. We'll be among the trees and we'll run away. They have very strict discipline. The sledgehammer is used on, uh, you know, the yeah, yeah, yeah. deserters are shot in the back if they try and leave, just or, or executed or shot from the troops behind them, really tough. And 
you can imagine how the military feels now. The military is losing the war, and this guy has now been tapped by Putin to raise an army and do what the army has been unable to do, which is bring victory and win, win a big city or two and, and win where the army's failing. Richard, this is the most wonderful thing, and we could keep going for hours, but I, I want to accelerate you a little bit towards the end. So Alistair and I um, found ourselves waking up on a Saturday morning and dealing with the fact that Prigozhin suddenly had decided to turn around and instead of advancing towards the Ukrainian troops, was leading the Wagner group up towards Moscow and in fact was getting surprisingly close, surprisingly quickly. So just bring us up to date on what on earth was happening there. So he, he, he picked Bahmut, the city of Bahmut, which is not a particularly strategic city. Yeah, why did he do that? It's because he needed to show victory. And it was a place where he could, he could take the city. Russian troops have been struggling to take other cities around there. So we're gonna take this Bahmut and I'm gonna deliver you a victory. It could have been almost any city. It was the idea, I'm gonna take a target and I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna deliver a victory that is clear and obvious to the, to the Kremlin. So he picks Bahmut. I don't want to say arbitrarily, but it's not a particularly, it doesn't control any terrain, it doesn't control any territory. It's just a small city among many cities in, in, in Eastern Ukraine, not far from the Russian border. And he pours everything he has at this city and, um, and, and, and devastating the city in the process. I was in Bahmut, it was horrendous. Shells coming down left, right, center, horrendous fighting. And the, the generals who were jealous that he was given this mission in the first place, hate the fact that he's making progress in this city. Every bomb that he drops, every person that he sends running out of the city is a show of his power. And that he's doing a great, horrible collective punishment cost to this, to this you know, civilian city is, is, is a symbol of his superiority over the military. So what do the military start doing? According to him, and this has been, been verified by, by numerous intelligence agencies, they start to undercut him. They stop giving him ammo because he's now just turned into an army, which he never was. So he's dependent on the military for the supply chain, for artillery and heavy weapons and tanks. He doesn't have any of this kind of stuff. So the military is his supply chain. So the military starts cutting off his supply chain and he still wins. He still takes the city. And then after he takes the city, this is when he loses it with Shoigu and Gerasimov, the defense minister and the army chief. Uh, and he says that he's, he's starting to become vocal and he's issuing these threats. You people are the worst in the world. You're traitors. You're cutting off my men. He's screaming at them and he's getting more and more furious, which is uh, just was just fascinating to watch this man get more and more outrageously angry. He's, yes, he's happy to send his men into battle, but he doesn't want them to be betrayed. And do you think Putin is like he was with the, with the oligarch phase? Is he sitting at the top of this, playing him off against Shoigu and Gerasimov? It's hard to know, you know the internal Kremlin politics, but, but clearly Putin was allowing this to happen. Because now, when, when they start to undercut his supply chain, very frequently, I don't want to say every day, but every few days, Prigozhin is issuing these angry statements and getting away with it. So don't forget how Putin was so angry with his military for having failed in the war thus far. There's several army chiefs who've been changed. So Putin has made the, his military very nervous because within months of, of failure, you're sacked and somebody else. Now he's brought in his special Mr. Fix-It on top of that. So the military is already nervous, on edge, jealous, and then, then to add the final insult to injury, after he wins this city at the cost of flattening it, the, the generals come in, and this is according to Prigozhin's own account because he, he starts to explain it, and he says they say to him, thank you very much, job well done, you're done. Disbanding Wagner as the military unit, your troops can, they're gonna be absorbed into the ranks of mm. the Russian military, and you as a as, as Wagner no longer have an army and he loses it that these people have been cutting him off for the end of the knees now move in to disband his force and take away his troops and the next thing we know he's on marching first to Rostov which is the headquarters of the army that has you know been screwing him over and then marches up to Moscow and then stops mysteriously 
So Richard, he goes crazy. He marches basically on Moscow, and then he comes to a grinding halt. Yes, one of the great mysteries. And because this isn't over yet, he marches halfway to Moscow. He takes Rostov, and then he stops. There's a fight along the way. Some some Russian uh, aircraft are shot down. And then he suddenly stops. And he says, there's this deal. I'm going to go to Belarus and I'm stopping because I never meant to threaten the state. I'm paraphrasing uh, Prigozhin. I was really just trying to show that I wanted these generals removed and that they're totally incompetent. But my message has been delivered and now I'm withdrawing. And he leaves Rostov and he's cheered. Presumably, Richard, he was talking to Lukashenko in Belarus because Lukashenko was absolutely doing Putin's bidding. It was, he wasn't actually a negotiator, was he? This is all when we're starting now to enter into speculation. I know what happened to him, and I watched this sort of evolution of Prigozhin from violent petty criminal to now army chief of this criminal army that has destroyed a city and then got undercut and lost his mind. And then he marches into, the, into Russia and then stops. And I don't know why he stopped. I don't know where he went. So he, then he supposedly went to Belarus, but then the, Lukashenko the, of, of Belarus says he was never there. The latest rumors are he's in St. Petersburg. I don't know. It's an evolving story. So what's gonna happen to him? What's gonna happen to his army? What's gonna happen to his Africa empire? And I think frankly, that's what Putin is trying to figure out. Because if you kill the guy, okay, what are you gonna do with his, his, his tens of thousands of troops who are gonna be angry? And by the way, Putin needs troops right now because he's still fighting a war. The Ukrainians are in the midst of an offensive. They're getting more and more weapons. So what is he going to do with these men? So I think he's trying to figure out how to, what, what's the next step for him? But he's been, he's been wounded. Certainly he's been wounded. So has it damaged them both? Putin and Prigozhin both weakened by this? Or is Putin feeling a little bit stronger? This is where we're entering into what's the next phase. And mm. from what my my guess, my estimate of, of how this plays out is he still has these 25,000 fighters. Putin can't just take these people and shoot them all. They're war heroes to a degree. The Russian people would be outraged by that. Difficult to fold them into the ranks of the Russian military because they don't like the Russian military. They're still loyal to Prigozhin. The Russian military, what do they, wouldn't, I don't think, use them as troops because when they put them in as bottle washers or, or something like that, folding laundry and cooks, I, I think they would be less useful. You have 25,000 crack battle-hardened troops. If you're Putin, you would send them back into combat because if they get killed, well, at least they were fighting on the battlefield and maybe they took some pressure off the army and, and maybe Prigozhin has offered this chance to sort of redeem himself through combat and then what happens to him i don't know a lot of a lot of people stood up to Putin. you know don't last too long well richard this has been the most amazing thing i mean there's so many things that we still have to get into and we we may have to return to this with another conversation another chapter but thank you it is extraordinary and i think it's difficult to convey to the listeners just how much intimate experience you bring to this being on the front line in Bakhmut, being in Syria, being in the Central African Republic, being personally threatened by this man, and the incredible insight that this gives us into the nature of Putin's regime. I mean, people often talk about it being a gangster state, but to literally see a violent criminal through 10 years in penal servitude, setting up a chain of restaurants and ending up taking gold mines, oil fields, forming his own entire division basically of the Russian army and then marching on Moscow. And the question is, why? how did Putin not see it coming? Mm. Remember Putin? What have we seen him for COVID? The end of long, long tables in isolation. So if you're the boss of bosses, what do you have to do? You got to watch your own families. You got to watch the insiders. Mm. And I think it seems like maybe he took his eye off the ball. Well, listen, maybe if Roy and I do another emergency podcast on Prigozhin and Putin will get you. We'll get you back on. But thanks for giving us so much time, and and we'll put the film out. And I think I learned an awful lot. I thought I knew a lot about Putin and the way he operates, but I learned a lot. My pleasure. Thanks, you guys. Thanks very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. So, Rory, Richard Engel. I I read um, before we did it. I read the list of awards that he's won in his time. I think he's going to add to those. 
I think it was extraordinary. What maybe he didn't bring across totally, but I spent a couple of days with him, and that was in the middle of that, is how difficult he found it to get NBC to commission it in the first place. I mean, the editors were like, who the hell is this guy, Prigozhin? Why are you spending all this money going to the Central African Republic and walking around Syria and all the Ukraine and all this stuff? And they were going to put it out in a very, very small way, I think, in September. And then suddenly the whole thing blew up and he was like, I've been telling you about Prigozhin for the last year and a half. And, and they rushed it all out, got all this stuff together and got off. And we were the only people, I think, who got an interview with him as it came out. So that was also an exclusive there. And I think he's also, um, I suspect it is uh, one of those films that will get sold by NBC all around the world, I would have thought, because this guy has become so central to the what is probably the most important story in the world at the moment, the, the war in Ukraine. Anyway, the documentary is now on YouTube and we'll put the link in the show notes and we'll also put it in our newsletter on Friday so listeners can um, have a look. And there's also a lovely thing that we, we can share in the newsletter, which has been an amazing analysis of Prigozhin's medals. Somebody's looked at his incredible... Did you see that on Twitter? I did. I, well, I saw the photograph of his jacket that was found when they raided his house. And yeah, he's got a lot of medals. And somebody's actually gone through them one by one, you know, sort of the star of the Central African Republic, the kind of Libyan award, the hero of Russia. The... <laughs> he's quite, he is, he is quite a big figure though, isn't he? Um, the, the other thing that was interesting, the only other thing I really liked about him, uh, about Richard, was that he didn't want to talk about things that, of which he didn't have direct personal experience. He kept, he kept saying, well, that would take me into the realms of speculation. And it's so refreshing for a journalist who's clearly very, very good at their job and believes that journalism is about going out there on the ground. But he only really wanted to talk about things that he had established for himself. And I really, really liked that. Yeah. He's also part of this strange group that you, you've probably seen a lot of, and I've seen a lot of, of these foreign correspondents. Mm. I, I remember in Afghanistan in the early days in Iraq, when I was staying in hotels with journalists, I came into Libya the day after Tripoli fell. Richard, very much part of a group of people who I've seen pop up all over the world, of whom probably the, you know, one of the most famous was a woman called Mary Colvin, um, who yeah. was sadly killed eventually in Syria. But I used to see her with Richard in these different places, sitting around hotels in Baghdad or in Tripoli. And one underestimates the incredible risks these people are taking with their lives. I mean, they're wonderful people to be with. You jump in a car with them. They're right at the front line. They're getting these stories. But it's it's not funny getting Prigozhin directly threatening you down the phone, saying he's going to put his hand on your Adam Adam's apple. Mm, mm. No, and also, yeah, the... Uh, we, we talked before on the podcast about Shamima Begum, and that was because of the work done by John Lloyd on The Times. And look, the fact is, I sometimes probably go over the top in my criticisms of the of the UK media, because there are still some very, very, very good journalists. And but what it's what you know what was really good about talking to him is that that to me was a proper journalist who'd spent a long time investigating a story, as you say, struck a bit lucky in terms of timing, um, but actually is somebody who likes to establish facts for himself and then communicate them to the world, which is pretty much what news reporting should be about. Very good. Well, thank you very much. Great. Well done for getting him, and we'll see you soon. 